Has any of you fuckers seen cheapskates? If you haven't, don't go down that road. It's kind of like, it's just a pit with no ending. Kind of like 90 Days Fiance. <laughs> Never understood why I got into that show, but then you kind of watch like a little bit of clips here and there. Well, cheapskates <laughs> is a TLC show, so you know it's gonna be fucked. That's like Deadpool. I had... I had a whole thing when I got addicted to my strange addiction. I was just watching people, like, eat weird shit. I was like, why? Why are you eating your husband's ashes, woman? It's it's not, it's not, it's it's cannibalism, okay? Use it. Would that be considered cannibalism? For somebody who has a true crime podcast, really need to investigate into that. Wow, watch it, watch it. Next minisode, like just breakdown of that single episode of my strange addictions. I watched two particular episodes of Cheapskates. Well, not in full, <laughs> not fucking mental patient. But there was this one where a woman made lasagna in a freaking dishwasher. <laughs> I had to stop for a second, question my intelligence, and be like, wait. <laughs> How does dishwasher work? <laughs> but also, I am not wealthy and I don't have a dishwasher. So I was like, you are trying to be cheap, but you have a dishwasher. No, no quadra, okay? It doesn't... What, what's the no quadra in English? <laughs> it does not... It does not connect. does not. The second one was this woman who just... Just wouldn't buy shit. So, like, even underwear... So the last underwear she wore was like 1998. <laughs> Boy, hey. We're in like 2021. No need to tell you what year we are in. And she showed this underwear and it looked like swimming trunk. <laughs> and all of her house was just a junkyard. It was like a flea market. I was like, nothing makes sense. How? How do people not see the problem? So today we are not talking about James Gates. I'm just trying to escape the inevitability of this case. Okay couple of things. The other day, I have discovered a legitimate fear. I have watched Frozen, not the cartoons. <laughs> Imagine if that thing would just scare me. It's like, no, no, I'm legit scared of this movie. So yeah, yesterday I watched Frozen the Thriller. It's from like 2010 and it's about these three people that get stuck on a ski lift and have to survive for about five days. So that's a fear I didn't know I had up until that point and now I do. But this fear you're very aware of because this was, I think, episode... Seven or six, the one when I had a friend on, when I had Sakani on, and we spoke about the girl in the box. <sighs> yeah, that, that roller coaster. So that's a case where I covered it on YouTube. I covered it here. It just stuck. It haunts me through life. Sometimes it's midnight, and I'm like, hey, why not go into that thing that lives in my head rent free? So this month has a pattern when it comes to minisodes because I'm like, no, I'm gonna face this fear. And I'm gonna tell you about two cases. Well, women have been buried alive. So it's a different spin on events. And if you know the Ryan Reynolds movie, Buried, this is the pretty much real-life version of it. So the next one will have a different ending. So without spoiling it, this kind of has a similar ending, well, to, you know, the person's life in the coffin. Is it a spoiler if a movie was released like 10 years ago? Is it? Can it truly be? Can it? <laughs> okay, let's go into the case. Why? Why are you plugging this? Let's do this. We're going to the German today, to the far south of Germany. Think old. Think one of those really old villages next to the sea, next to the Amersee. And this is the part where wealthy families from other bigger towns like Munich in the area would buy 
second homes because they just have the money. Some people can't afford the one house. Some people are like, no, let's flex it. Second house, motherfuckers. And where tourists would drink beer in waterfront restaurants, according to this. This is about 99% from a Guardian article. Shout out to this guy. Listen, this case isn't covered much by podcasters or just anybody else, which is, uh, I don't want to call it a mistake, but I see why people don't cover it. It just has that nobody wins ending. <laughs> yeah, I pulled you in. Now you stay. You stay. Why, why are you switching off the podcast? Do not switch this episode off. So 15th of September 1981, 10-year-old Ursula Herrmann heads home. She decides to cycle from her cousin's house. And she was the youngest of her siblings. She practiced piano with her older brother Michael. And then for the late afternoon, she had hobbies. So she would go do gymnastics in like a different part of the village. Then she was to go to her cousin and eat dinner, and at 7.20, her mother calls the aunt, so, like, calls her sister, and just tells her, like, listen, send her home, it's kind of getting dark, and Ursula had to cycle for about 10 minutes through a forest by the lake. I know I see the red flags in this in itself, but I think it was different times. Kids were just left alone, and it was all peaceful, and people trusted everybody. It was like, yeah, whatever, she can cycle in the dark, it's just a short ride home. However, this, as many other cases, will prove to be every parent's worst nightmare. However, this will obviously turn to be one of those wake-up calls to parents and just to everybody where the mindsets have shifted, and suddenly nobody wanted their children on the street by themselves. And that's because of what happens next. So half an hour later, Ursula is still not at home. So the mother again rings the aunt, is like, <laughs> like this isn't a joke. Why didn't you like tell her to go home immediately? And the aunt was like, no, she left like 25 minutes before. Immediately, they were like, okay, this is not like her. Something is wrong. Ursula's dad rushes into the forest immediately. And the uncle also comes from like that um, door of the village where Ursula went to do gymnastics and stuff. That's where he lived. So they met midway immediately. So her parents did everything right here, in a sense that they reacted immediately, met midway, then like spread out and got other family members and started calling out Ursula's name in this forest. So within an hour, there was neighbors, there was police, firemen, everybody joined the search with torches, with water, and just like struggling through this forest, through undergrowth to cover all grounds. And it was almost midnight, and the rain started falling. It was like a shit show of nights. Sniffer dogs were leading people away from the lake into the brush, like into the bushes area. And there is where they would find Ursula's red bike. But she wasn't there. They even had a helicopter hovering overhead, like a police boat, divers. Immediately, local radio was basically the same night carrying the shocking news of the missing girl... They gave her height, that she had short blonde hair, that she was wearing dark green cords, gray woolen cardigan, red-brown sandals, and that she was the daughter of a teacher and a housewife, again trying to like empathize with the public and be like, no, this is urgent, she disappeared, this is out of the ordinary, she definitely would have gone home, she's not a runaway. Meanwhile, I'm about to ruin your hopes and dreams, because Ursula is in that forest, and she is still alive at this moment while they're searching for her. She is buried in a box that's 1.40 meters deep, that is fitted with a shelf and a seat. There's an image of it, slightly disturbing, <laughs> gotta tell you, because they put, like, 
a caricature of a person in it, just so you can picture it. And the seat doubled as a toilet, so it could be like a toilet and then could obviously be flipped and she could just sit on it. It was stocked with three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, six large chocolate bars, four packets of biscuits, two packs of chewing gum. And it also had like a small library of books, so anything from like comics to westerns, romance novels, thrillers. There was also a light and a portable radio that was tuned to a particular station, which was Bayern Free. And that was the same station that would broadcast the traffic jingle that she was missing. This is going to be important, that's why I'm emphasizing on it. And the crucial part is now when you hear this, you're obviously thinking, well, she was intended to live. Because somebody clearly at least tried to supply her with enough food for a certain period of time. However, whoever designed this failed to realize that there was a ventilation system that they put in place, but it was made out of plastic plumbing pipes. And also a few things, it didn't have the machine that would circulate the air, so it didn't work like a normal fan would, so the oxygen was quickly to run out. And the second thing is, as I told you, it was raining, so there were leaves falling down, which was probably also clogging those pipes and clogging that ventilation system. So Ursula really didn't have too long to live. At this point, with the family, they even informed the police, everybody's on it, and she was missing more than 36 hours, when the phone rang at the Hermann house. And this caller was such a fucker, so the caller would just, like, leave them in silence, and then he would play the jingle from the radio, basically, like, hey, blasting it like she's missing. We know, mate, like, can you provide us with some information? Why the fuck are you calling? Then more silence, then he would replay the jingle, and then he would hang up the phone. So the police immediately got on it and they were like, no, 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 we gotta start recording the calls because if he is into this taunting behavior, he's gonna call again. Luckily, he did. And they started recording. He called a few other times during the day. They started recording. It would be the next day when the postman delivered an envelope addressed to Ursula's father and he marked it as urgent. Inside this freaking envelope was the ransom note. It's like that thing when you see in movies of like cut-out letters from, from different tabloid newspapers. And when I first saw it, the word that jumped at me is halten, which is to hold or to keep in German. I just thought that that was interesting because that's the one that's cut out like, it seems, from the same newspaper. So I'm not sure if he was cutting it out from like her own newspaper as like people saying Ursula is missing and somebody might be keeping her. Again, I'm not sure, but this gives me, this rings particularly creepy by me because I need a sideline because this story is heavy and it's just gonna get heavier. But I have done a similar thing. I don't know why. Honestly, I have no, I have no idea what was going through my head. It wasn't a fucking ransom letter. <laughs> Maybe that's the first, that's the leading line, Maya. It's like, no, I've done the same. Like, I kidnapped other people. I just send ransom letters idiot no i've done it with a friend back home (laughs) and i think it was one of the parents that opened the letter it was literally just like hey checking up (laughs) once i first came here like 11 years ago i was like hey how are you doing but it was literally letter by letter (laughs) cut out from like newspapers and magazines (laughs) and i think yeah his parents were like "Uh, can she like not contact you online (laughs) there's this thing called internet (laughs) It's like kind of creepy opening a letter. It doesn't matter that it just says like, what's up? Because it gives you the creepy vibes. Cool, moving on back to the story. So the ransom note said, we kidnapped your daughter. If you want to see your daughter alive again, pay 2 million in Deutschmarks, which was 450,000 pounds in ransom. 
And it was obvious from how it was worded that they actually expected the note to arrive a day before. So, like, before they made the calls, because basically they said, like, hey, expect the phone calls. And the calls would use the jingle as a call sign, being like, hey, it's me calling. Like, who the fuck else would it be? Like, it's not like a family member being like, no, you know what would be fucking hilarious? Running this jingle of a missing girl to, like, the family member. We know it's you, moron. And they say... Next time when the phone rings, what they were supposed to be doing all of this time, and this jingle plays to say yes or no, as in are they going to pay or not, or they're going to kill the daughter, basically. So mom, next time the call rings, like ring, ring, she says yes. But the mom was smart because she asked for proof of life. This is what you always need to freaking do. And not just that, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, show me a picture of her or like, you know, ask her because obviously it was 1980s. So it had to be something like, no, ask my daughter to answer this question for me. This is why I tell you always have keywords if you are in icky situations that you need to get out of. So the mom here says, what were my daughter's nicknames for her two stuffed toys? Smart fucking respect for Ursula's mom. And the kidnapper doesn't reply. So she becomes frantic. She's like, talk to me, say something, something from Ursula. Because obviously, if Ursula is alive at this point, he could go, ask her, and give the mother the answer. However, there's obviously a reason why she's not getting the answer. So that same evening, the kidnappers posted the second letter that arrived on Monday. This was at this point, 21st of September. So it was six days since Ursula disappeared. And here they're like, okay, cool. You remember how you said yes on the phone? So this is how you deliver the ransom to us. So they wanted money paid in 100 Deutschmark bills, packed in a suitcase. They watch like some weird ass fucking movies. To be delivered in the unnamed location by Ursula's dad. And he was to drive alone in a yellow Fiat 600 going no faster than 90 kilometers per hour. Most probably, I'm thinking about this because I was like, it's fucking specific as shit. Most probably driving limits so that he doesn't get stopped and then the police expects and then the police is in on it so that he doesn't raise any red flags. Her parents didn't have this money at that point so the neighbor got in on it, raised part of the ransom and the state agreed to cover the rest. But now two weeks have passed. They have no further instructions. Nothing. They have no strong leads. The kidnappers not contacted the family any longer. So the police is like, okay, we need to search the forest again. Let's do it. If you know, even if they have done something elsewhere, maybe they return to this forest to like dispose of the body. We need to search it again. So more than a hundred officers again assemble with sniffer dogs, and they divide it in four parts and quarter each and every one of them with small grids. By the fourth day of searching, Ursula at this point missing for 19 days, at 9.30 a.m., one of the police officers screams. About 800 meters away from the lake path, he struck something while he was probing with one of those metal rods and, like, probing the soil. So everybody runs to him, they try to wipe the leaves, and they discover a brown blanket that was covering a wooden board. They remove it, they find the second board, which appeared to obviously open up a box. And they describe this box as the size of a small coffee table, painted green, locked from the top with seven sliding bolts. So they use the spade, force the lid open, peer it in, 
and obviously they find the lifeless body of Ursula. And it was reported that the officer who was like lifting her out was weeping, and obviously everybody had to now go back to Ursula's home and report to the parents what they discovered. The autopsy concluded Ursula died within 30 minutes to 5 hours of being buried. There was no struggle, nothing showing that she has been beaten or anything like that. But also there was no sign of movement, so the police immediately suspected like they have probably drugged her. Because just there was no struggle, there was no like attempt to move and like try to save herself like or open up the ventilator. Now once they broke the news to the family, the police immediately starting actually doing the detective work on this. So they thought that they were looking for more than one kidnapper because of the size and the weight of the box. So the box was around 60 kg, so they thought they probably needed two people to be carried into the woods. And because of the location and how long it took them and how they concealed it, they thought that this is somebody that knew this forest well. So immediately they offered the reward of 30,000 Deutschmarks at that time, and the tips started pouring in. So one name that started reappearing was Werner Marzurek. He was 31 at the time, he lived with his wife, with the children, and he only lived a few meters from the Hermann household. And immediately I was like, okay, this sounds like some, you know, the tunnel vision. They're honing in onto somebody that might or might not be it. So he was a trained car mechanic, so they were like, he is good with hands. Who creates box? People that are good with their hands. Like, okay, I mean, by that logic, it's also people who give great hand jobs. I don't fucking know. Like, what is that logic? They said, but he had a motive, and you know how much I love motives? He had a monetary motive because he was in debt, and he owned a bank more than 140,000 Deutschmarks. So it was like, listen, you know, with that ransom, he might be able to pay that off. Also, one thing I didn't mention when it comes to the ransom kind of sounded specific. So again, this makes me not suspect Mazurek, because usually people who do need specific amounts are just not smart enough not to ask for those specific amounts or something that's literally maybe like 10k off. So why didn't he ask for something more specific here if this was his motive? So the police questions him and he at first doesn't really remember the movements of the night when he was missing. Again, could be a sketch, but could be that it's just been like 20 plus days at this point and if somebody asks you what have you done like December last year well it's easy in quarantine but you know let's go back to 2019 like normal life if somebody asks you what did you do can't remember shit so it took him 24 hours to give the police an alibi that he was playing the board game risk with his wife and two friends he was fingerprinted like they examined his whole home and everything and they found no evidence connecting him, like no DNA evidence. But the police didn't really drop Mazurek ever. Even in January 1982, they arrested him and his friends. They questioned them for several days before releasing them. And now their entry point, I feel at like this point, started being one of his friends. His name was Klaus Pfaffinger. And he was the another mechanic, and this guy was unemployed with a drinking problem. But they were like, no, this is fine. He is mechanic, so he must be good with hands, but no, he's not a suspect. He's just like gonna, you know, he's our entry point to get to Mazurek. So Pfaffinger told them that Mazurek asked him to dig a hole in the forest in early September 1981, promising him the payment of a thousand Deutschmarks 
and a color television. <laughs> this was such a brilliant moment. I really needed something like this in this story because the story is so heavy. But imagine the point in life, the point in history where bargaining with a color television was it. The bargaining chips were truly different. This would probably be the equivalent of like somebody bargaining for a PS5 right now. Like, no, 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 you're just, you're at the next level. You're a bowler at the time. Like when somebody sees like, whoa, you're one of the first people to have like a color TV. Whoa, look at this guy. He's rich as fuck. However, <laughs> Fuffinger had no fucking clue where this spot is. So they kind of didn't take him seriously or... Did they? Because there was a whole freaking case that was based on this solely. This fucking year being like, well, I helped him dig a hole. And I don't think that people are looking at this logistically. Like, it's not like he is revealing something that nobody knows about, which is something that you should be looking once researching into crimes. Easy for me to say as an armchair detective, I know. At this point, people knew that Ursula was found in a box, in a forest, in the ground. So the easiest way to incriminate somebody would be like, oh no, there was a hole in a forest. But then this guy just isn't the smartest person ever because he's implicating himself as well. Then he revoked the confession. He said it's not true what he said. And during the at least 10 interrogations during the next following months, he refused to repeat the confession and was eventually released without charge because he probably went home, spoke to his wife, and the wife was like, you understand that you said you helped him dig the hole, right? Genius of a plan of like getting this reward money or whatever the fuck the plan was. You get that you are going to be incriminating yourself here as well. So summer of 1982, Mazurek decides to move away from this neighborhood because his name is smeared at this point. Like, everybody's looking at him weirdly. And detectives decide to spread out themselves as well. So on the television program that was equivalent to, like, America's Most Wanted, they featured and had a long segment on Ursula Herman's case. And the police found a bit more while digging into this. So they found a wire that was strung through the trees along the lakeside path to basically serve to the abductor as like the alert system that somebody has found a place. But by the end of 1980s, the case has gone cold. And her family did their best to move on with their life, so the father and the sister turned apparently to their strong Christian faith to find peace. The youngest brother found solace in surfing, and he like went on, I think, still like surfing to this day. But the next one is brilliant. Okay. We gotta talk about Michael. Michael is the elder brother. He is a character. Like, I have changed my opinion on Michael like 20 times during this research. Sorry, Michael, if you're listening. I kind of respect you by the end of it. And I agree with you by the end of it. But this was brilliant. So, Michael, the elder brother, who was obviously devastated by his sister... He was interviewed by this Guardian journalist, and he said, Then it quickly turned into, what can I do with this now? Because I knew the why would never be answered. I decided I'm alive and I have some tasks to do. (laughs) The most German thing out there. Now, German people will hear this and be like, this is normal. (laughs) This is a normal response. The rest of the world is going to look hear this and be like no that is the most german thing we have ever heard listen (laughs) 
as somebody who has had the most awkward conversation with one of the people that I've known 10 years ago about what just being in Germany is and being able to spot a German from like miles away is um this is not how other people react. You're just a bit more emotionally detached from the rest of the world. Not saying it's a bad thing. It's great for like organizational thing, business, like, you know, getting shit done, moving on with your life, doing business. But I just love that this was worth it. It was probably like a rough translation, <laughs> but I have some tasks to do. It's one of my favorite things. So, Michael, I wasn't like your number one fan at this point. However, However, with the years, the science has developed, so the numerous hairs that they have found on the scene were now forensically examined, and people just knew they just needed a match. So in 2007, they got one. So this match sent them on some weird, wild goose chase. The sample from a screw on the box matched the sample that was found on a glass in a Munich penthouse of this wealthy woman who was brutally murdered in May 2006. They got super excited, but the trial was for a person who was only a few years old when Ursula was kidnapped, so they knew that it couldn't be him. So people either decided this is a mistake in genetic profiling, it is still kind of new, or it can be just, like, somebody's relative, which I think, like, isn't really an area that they have explored much, or, you know, it's a screw. You know, it could... Yes, it is probably somebody that has made a box, but then could it be that the screws have went from Munich and there was this guy connected to that industry? But basically then that was another dead end. So we're now in 2007, and the police here knew that this crime carried a 30-year statute of limitations. So they knew that they had to explore all of the options and put really the pressure. So what they have done, they have went back to their one and only suspect at the time, Mazurek, who was still alive, living with his wife in the north of Germany now, which is where he ran a boat accessories business. And uh, another genius line in this, genius line, with a friend on Tuesday evenings, he would visit a snack bar that bore the advertising slogan. Why the fuck do we know the advertising slogan of a snack bar that Mazurek visited? I will never know. But it has changed my life. Norbert's Pig and Werner's Beer, the finest at the Harbor Pier. Did it add anything to your life? Did it do anything to you? Are you emotionally feeling any different now? No, but you are a better person. <laughs> so in 2007, this police is like, no, we are not putting our resources to anything else. We are putting you under surveillance. So the undercover officer <laughs> was deployed to befriend him. Like, well, become his friend. And they literally, I feel like they're investing all of the resources onto this one guy. This guy befriends him. He then, like, puts the recording devices all over his house, car, everywhere. And then finally, the police actually gets to him. It's like, hey, we are actually just, you know, taking saliva samples because the technology has advanced. So give us your saliva sample. He does. Again, the DNA doesn't match. But through this police officer, the investigators really reeled in and relied on one single piece of evidence. Now, if you have been following since the beginning, you will know what this is. It's the tape recorder. And the game was now on. Will they be able to prove that this device was used to record the jingle on the radio and on those calls to her parents all those years ago? 
So they found a sound expert. Please, somebody, if you are a sound expert, a sound engineer, but somebody who has done this in the tape recorder time, tell me how, because this is literally what they rely on. This is it. This is their, like, Mecca and Medina. <laughs> this, is, this is their miracle. This is what they use, what they rely on, what this whole case is dependent on. So the sound expert concludes that it was indeed the same tape recorder that was used in the kidnapping. So in May 2008, nearly 27 years after her death, Mazurek was arrested. Ursula's parents notified, and also, according to the German legal system, relatives of the victims of certain serious crimes can join the prosecution as Nebenklages, such a cool word, meaning co-plaintiffs, meaning they can review the evidence. And they can also request witnesses, put questions to the judges, I think this should be kind of the law in like every freaking country. Like the one and only trial that I have been part of was this case where they didn't prepare this girl at all. Didn't brief me and I was supposed to be the witness. Didn't brief anybody. And again, because it's how the justice system works, it's how the court system works. The trial happened a couple of years after the crime. So just nobody was briefed. Like you can't win a case like that. I just don't understand it. And in this case, it was actually people taking the stand on the trial. It wasn't even a situation like this. So this should be part of every freaking judicial system. So the parents didn't want to suffer again. However, Michael here, now in his 40s and teaching religion and music at a girls' secondary school of Augsburg, decides to become the co-plaintiff. Again, Michael, religion and music at a girls' secondary school? I'm not... Listen. <laughs> as, as you know, I loved you by the end of it. At this point, can't red flag Michael. Why Why not teaching at a boys' school, Michael? <laughs> Please. So the prosecution didn't really struggle picturing Mazurek as, as a piece of shit. Basically, his family didn't have any good things to say about the guy. He also had, you know, some charges and some clashes with the law before. He had a fraud conviction for falsifying documents. And then there was... A very unfortunate, and I'm sorry to go here because there are people that get a lot more upset about pets than human murders, which again, I don't particularly get. But still, this is fucked up, so maybe skip for about 60 seconds. There was a story about Mazurek and a dog. From one October fest in 1974, Mazurek returned home, probably drunk, and he found that the dog that they had at the time, named Susie, overturned the rubbish bin in the kitchen, he lost it, and locked the dog in the basement freezer. The next day, his wife returned, and she was already about to divorce his ass, but she went to the freezer to get some meat and discovered the dog there, frozen to motherfucking death. And later, uh, Mazurek said that he punished the pet with the exile to Siberia. <laughs> Just so done with this case. But then, when you look at it from this perspective, this is when I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, if this is how you're treating a dog and you're letting the dog technically die, buried, alive, maybe, maybe, maybe you have something to do with this crime. So they said he had the motive, he had the means because he basically had a workshop at the time, so he could work secretly without the wife and the family knowing. Then the best, the best persecution, I was like, okay, th this is circumstantial, okay? We, let's just classify evidence versus like circumstantial. Everything here is borderline circumstantial, but <laughs> this next part. They have actually found 
that the piece of leather that was used in the box construction was cut from a belt. And this belt, fuck me again, how do they know how long this belt was? But it was owned by somebody with a large stomach. And guess what Mazurek had? <laughs> he had a large stomach. He had a beer stomach. He was snacking at a snack bar where the Norbert and the pig snacked. Or whatever the fuck that slogan was. And another piece of circumstantial evidence that they, that they had, remember that the cop befriended him. So once they reviewed one of the recordings, they found out that Mazurek was discussing the statute of limitations in Ursula Herman's case. And they were like, boom. Why else would you be discussing this if you were not involved? Which probably the strongest one out of all of this bullshit that I have just told you. I mean, that and the dog fucking thing. Because again, when people start with animals, they usually escalate to humans. They present Fuffinger's testimony. I think he was dead at this point. But basically they said like, no, he described it. He just couldn't find the exact spot in the forest. But the most important, again, circumstantial, but controversial piece of evidence with its proof was the tape recorder. So Mazurek said he purchased this tape recorder that they have found a few weeks before the crime at this flea market while he was on this short holiday with his wife. But again, this couldn't be proven because it's a flea market. They don't give receipts. Also, why would you have to prove? Like, if somebody was like, oh no, Maya, prove, like, how did you have this candle that you, I don't know, that... There was also <laughs> this beautiful, this beautiful example of buying something cheap. So yeah, how did you have this candle, Maya? How, how did you buy it? Can you prove to me how you have purchased it? I probably would be able to because it's Amazon. It's cheap, cheap shit. And I should probably return it because it's just fucking disemboweled in front of everybody's eyes. Super embarrassing. Schadenfreude right here. Uh, but yeah, it's Amazon, so you can prove it. Back then, was there Amazon? No, he actually physically went to purchase this freaking tape recorder. So the state's expert, whose specialty was phonetics, apparently, rather than audio, and <laughs> I'm like, all right, sure, do we need to have maybe another expert in audio? And like, how the fuck are you examining this? Said that they, in the recording on the ransom calls, you can hear a couple of clicking sounds. And it sounded like, you know, when you press the buttons on a tape recorder during this recording of the jingle. So this expert said, like, basically, those press buttons were like eureka moment for them. So it's based on those sounds being identical and other subtle characteristics of the recording that also corresponded precisely to the specific machine that was there. They basically said it's probable. So it's not even like... Definitely possible, 90% possibility. No, it's just circumstantial as fuck. So it only took three judges and two jurors to be convinced and find Mazare guilty and sentencing him to life in prison for this. Basically, just not enough. Sketchy definitely probably should lay a couple of years in prison just for the dog's murder, you know? But life in prison for something that they couldn't really prove with DNA, for example. Just no. So this article said in court, everybody seemed happy, except from one person. So I put me, because I ain't happy. I ain't happy with this decision. No, Michael, remember, Michael and me starting to be like same page. He moved on from the girls' school and he was like, listen, this just doesn't seem right. So Michael, being the co-plaint, the Nabens Klage person... He went for 10,000 pages. 
this is when I started having like major respect. Went for 10,000 pages on file. And the most problem that he had was with a piece of evidence that nobody else seemed to be having problem. Therefore, there was a slam dunk. That was the tape recorder. So Michael had some background in music, obviously, and he knew about acoustics, about sound engineering, and just couldn't understand how this would be definitely linked to the ransom calls. And according to Michael and like what he has read in those documents, there was a need for a second device that would be more portable because the calls to his own household were made from the payphones. Michael, against his attorney's advice, writes to the court and he said that this is just incomplete, this was one-sided, especially this tape recorder evidence. And then because the court wasn't taking him seriously, because this was just odd that, you know, the co-plaintiff was on the side of the defense, he decided to start corresponding with Vazarek in prison. This is from one of the letters, quote, If you are not a culprit, I wish for more insights and that you can be rehabilitated. If you are the culprit, go to hell, end quote. German, as fuck, love it, to the point, no waste of time. This is it, this is, it. tell me, you're innocent? Cool, I'll be there for you. You guilty, go right to hell, bitch. <laughs> as he was getting, obviously, more and more involved into this, Michael's life was kind of falling apart. Like, he separated from his wife in 2012. But he just knew he owed it to his family to find the truth because he thought the wrong person is behind bars. So Michael comes up with this plan, which was kind of risky because it risked Masaryk being released, basically. So he filed a civil claim in 2013, seeking 20,000 euros in damages from Mazurek for causing him tinnitus. This is kind of like an ear infection, which makes you hear a noise ringing or buzzing. He claimed basically the anxiety and the stress of the court are what caused his tinnitus because he didn't have it before. So it was just a legal ruse because Mazurek had to basically defend himself saying he is wrongfully convicted. So that would be ruse enough for the court to reconsider the facts of the criminal trial before coming to a conclusion. And Michael thought this would be an opportunity to get near to the truth and maybe like actually release this guy if he is innocent, which he says he is. And he has done this because now the focus isn't on Masarek, the focus is also on Michael. So he had to describe like the life he has lived, the life he lived with his sister prior to this, you know, the music and religious classes. His own character was also perceived. So he has done like a really smart thing here. However, it didn't really lead nowhere. And apart from his friends and family, people didn't really understand. They just thought that this is something like an addiction, that he couldn't just let go of it, and that he became obsessive over this case. Finally, now, between 2016 and 2018, this has reached London. <laughs> While this trial is going on, between 2016 and 2018, this case happened in 1981. This is so mind-boggling, and this is why it's so interesting to me. It reaches London, and not just anybody in London, but it reaches Barbara Zipser. And Zipser was doing linguistic profiling at Royal Holloway University of London, and she is using these modern profiling techniques to basically compare the ransom notes and the sample of Masaryk's writing. And her conclusions were that whoever composed the ransom note was well-educated, a native speaker pretending to be a foreigner by writing in broken German. And she confirmed she is sure it's not Masaryk. While she was doing her profiling thing, in August 2018, the civil case concludes and the court actually orders Masaryk to pay Michael 7k for causing his tinnitus. 
However, this didn't lead where Michael wanted it to lead and Masaryk wasn't released in prison. He still keeps fighting from it to this day. And his defense lawyer is kind of famous in Germany. And the lawyer said he's still upset of how he was convicted. And then the best line, again, this just keeps, this is the gift that keeps on giving. What is it you say in England? Rather let 10 guilty men go free than hang one innocent one. I agree with the statement, but I'm going to tell you, defense lawyer Rubak from Germany, I have never ever heard this before. <laughs> agree with it? Never heard of it? Thank you for introducing me to it, because I'm British now. I need to flex these expressions. <laughs> Meanwhile, the brother gives us... This is the ending of the article, and it's just one of the most winning quotes ever again. So the brother used to describe the police in 1981 because he's again frustrated, still working on this case to this day, and still kind of obsessive over it, which, I mean, I don't blame you for it, because you think the wrong man is in prison, which means the real perpetrator of your sister's murder, who, like, literally buried her in a box and let her be... Buried alive, he's still out there. Probably alive. Kicking. <laughs> Just stepping on his pain, Maya, in it. Referring to the police in 81, quote, It means when the task you have is bigger than your capabilities. Like Brexit. <laughs> love it. I love it. Love it. I love it. I have nothing, nothing to add. It's just like somebody just chew a bit more. They just look a bite. The bar was too, was too much. It was too much. Absolutely love the thought process of him being like, how do I relate to this to the youths of the day? What's the current political culture? Division. Brexit. That's it. That's the one. And in 2018, again, in the effort to have this case reopened, Michael submitted the dossier of the new evidence and theories to the prosecutor's office in Augsburg. And Michael, if you're listening to this, hit me up, man. What was the outcome of this? This case just has me insane. This is this is it on the case. And I can't believe that it's just like such a... Nobody wins in any of these situations except that you have killer quotes, all of you. Especially that bar. That bar like won over it. And then you, Michael, obviously, with the best quotes in this story. But let me know what you think. Do you think Masaryk was the person that did it? Do you think that he had enough of a motive? Because that's one thing that I just don't feel it. The money is the thing that doesn't make sense to me. As I told you, usually when people ask for ransom, they ask for something that they specifically need. This was pretty particular, so I think that whoever that person was probably needed around that amount of money. And what did they need it for? I think that's one area that nobody really looked into, nobody really exploited. But then, luckily, actually, because another thing was the ransom note, and this was only looked into, what, four or five years ago? So, definitely think there was some tunnel vision here, and that some people needed to, like, exploit other areas of it. But what do you think? Do you think he was guilty? Do you think he was not? I just feel for Ursula, because this is one of the biggest fears I have as a grown-ass human. I mean, I believe from everything read that she wasn't really conscious, so she probably wasn't conscious that she was dying, which is a blessing in disguise, I guess, in this kind of situation. But boy, this is such a grim case. Why do you line up? Listen, I blame it on line up. Is this true crime website, okay? They sent me a newsletter that I subscribed to. I know, it's all their fault. <laughs> they sent me these newsletters and it was like an article girls in the boxes and I was like, click. 
innocently, of course. Completely not like my biggest fear and biggest interest and something that haunts me for life. Yeah, let's read through this article. So I was like, let's tee my month like this and exploit my fears. And boy, do I feel any better after this? No, because I don't think the real person is behind bars. What do you think? I'm gonna let myself out here because this I don't think this is a minisode. I have a feeling this this has a feeling of a full ass full-blown episode so i'm gonna get the fuck out of here and let you move on with your life and move on with your friday and your weekend and be a bit more like germans okay this is what we learned today not live in schadenfreude do not live feeling somebody else is making you ashamed who do you think you are but be more like michael you have other tasks to do have your priorities straight but until monday keep making this world a bit of a better place one motive at a time. And if you can't find a motive and you can only focus on the circumstantial evidence, that's not strong enough of a case. Souls! Bye, fuckers! Bye! <laughs>